Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. From one and a half degrees centigrade at the current level of emissions, which is of carbon dioxide is about here, so a huge quantity of carbon dioxide, that we will use up all of the carbon budget for one and a half degrees C, certainly within the decade. And it could be as early as just a few years from today. So we would have to make, you know, a current, a current emissions, within a decade, there will be no carbon budget left. In other words, it will be too late for one and a half degrees centigrade within a decade. And, and that's been fairly optimistic. For two degrees C, we have a bit longer on that. Um, now, if we are prepared to accept a sort of a moderate chance of two degrees centigrade, um, rise, which would all, already we recognise would be quite devastating for many parts of the world. That means really for the wealthy parts of the world, we have to have zero carbon energy by about 2035. Zero carbon. And not just electricity, but all forms of energy. Everything from flying and cars and refrigerators to industry and heating our homes and so forth. But in the end, I don't think at the moment that any grand organisation is going to solve this problem. And I, and, I, and I come back to this idea that it's a, it's a partnership issue, that we require everything from individuals making changes, not because of the emission reductions that we've been making, but because they demonstrate it can be done to their friends and their colleagues, to their universities, to their local businesses, to their sports clubs. They demonstrate what can be done, and therefore these things can be multiplied up. I'm very pleased today to introduce Kevin Anderson. Kevin is the Deputy Director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research, holds a Joint Chair in Energy and Climate Change at the School of Mechanical Aerospace and Civil Engineering at the University of Manchester and School of Environmental Sciences at the University of East Anglia and is advisor to the British Government on Climate Change. Kevin is a vital and outspoken voice on the dangers of climate change and the urgent necessity to take action today. Thank you very much, Kevin, for taking the time today to speak to the sustainability agenda. It's a great uh, honour to to uh, have an opportunity to speak to you about uh, issues which I know you care uh, greatly. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So um, I guess a good place to start would be if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the, the work that you do. OK, well, um, I should start by saying that I originally I was a mechanical engineer. So I have an engineering background before moving through into issues to do with climate change, where I've been working now for oh, far too long, several decades. Um, so I come in, come in from engineering, from a science perspective. The work that I primarily do is to try to take the science of climate change, um, and that science is probably best captured by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and their um, reports that they produce every few years, to take the science that's embedded within that and translate that through into this concept of carbon budgets, um, which myself and colleagues at the Tyndall Centre have been working on since 2005, 2006 now. Um, translate that into carbon budgets, and then into what that actually means for reducing our emissions, or as we call it, mitigation, within different nations. But particularly we focused previously on the UK and also at the global level, where we're increasingly looking at other countries as well. So it's what does the science tell us about what we would need to do in, in terms of reducing our emissions to be in line with the temperature targets that have been laid out most recently in the Paris Agreement that you must uh, stay well below 2 degrees centigrade and ideally try and pursue 1.5 degrees C temperature rise. But 
obviously previously have had a two degree C threshold that has been used and um, with perhaps with slightly less authority over the last 10 years or so. So that's really what I try to do, take the science and translate that into what that means um, at a, in a sort of policy context um, to keep our emissions in line with two degrees centigrade or better. Right. Well, that's really, uh, uh, I guess, whereas, well, what do they say, where the, the rubber hits the ground or, uh, right now? It's, 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 yes, it, it, it is, yes. It's become the, 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 the key question, really. I suppose before going into that, there is a question, uh, and uh, I don't know uh, what kind of language or how you characterise how bad the situation we are in today. Um, and, you know... Uh, how bad we are today? Well... The way we are going at the moment, and, and when I say that, I'm also including since Paris, um, in, as in, in the lead up into the Paris Agreement last December, um, every country, virtually every country of the world, submitted to the Paris negotiations um, what it thought it, that country could do between 2020 and 2030, sometimes a little bit longer than that, in terms of reducing their emissions. Now, if you add up all of the um, promises that countries said that they would commit to, then that looks like we're heading towards a three to four degrees C temperature rise by the end of the century. So this is what the, when the countries have actually bought in to the issue of climate change, when you add together everything they say, we're talking about a huge change in the temperature across the century. And just to put that in some sort of perspective, because on a cold day here in Sweden with the snow outside, you think three or four degrees C warming sounds quite pleasant. And um, the difference between now and an ice age is five degrees C. So we are talking about temperature changes that are bordering on the sorts of levels that we would see between today and an ice age. So though as a global average, they, you know, that's quite can be quite misleading. That doesn't sound, sound too challenging, whether it's 2 degrees C, 3 degrees C or 4 degrees C. The regional repercussions of that and the repercussions during extreme periods of weather in our lives um, are very severe indeed. So, let, so what, what we are talking about here is I often use the language, it's, it's perhaps it's just as a metaphor, that it's like moving to a different planet. A four degree C world is not the world we live in today. It will look very different in so many respects. Um, and it's happening so rapidly that many of the changes would be really quite catastrophic for ecosystems, or often as we would like to refer to them today as ecosystem services, saying oh, these are the services that provide us with the food and the, the wherewithal to live on our planet. Um, so a lot of the ecosystems will be destroyed. A lot of the emblematic sort of species will be will be wiped out, and and humans will really struggle to survive in any sort of reasonable number, um, with those sorts of temperature rises occurring as rapidly as we uh, are anticipating today. Right. Another way to think of this is that you know we had an asteroid hit us lots of years ago with fairly devastating consequences for the planet. Now the asteroid didn't know what it was doing. But from a geological perspective, we are very similar to the asteroid. We are hitting the planet really about as fast as the asteroid did. But the difference between the two is that we are conscious of that. We know what we are doing, and we know how we can divert ourselves away from causing that level of destruction. But we are choosing not to do that at the moment. Right, right. That's fascinating, uh, terrifying, um, but uh, interesting the, the way you put that, because, as you say, uh, the level of awareness, a big question. But I mean, I'm wondering how aware do you think? I mean, and, and breaking it down maybe into a kind of, I guess, policymakers, government and, and maybe uh, businesses as well. And, 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 you know, the man in the street, because when you put it like that, um, you know, the, the, the uh, COP21 is as good as it gets. But even then, it's, that's a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, dark scenario. Um, do, is, is, is there 
varying levels of awareness, then we can talk maybe about the the, the ability to translate the 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 the, the insights or awareness into action. Well, there is some awareness, yes, um, and some, certainly some of some policymakers, and indeed members of the public and people, the businesses, and so forth, are aware of of where we are heading in terms of climate change. But there is also a real reluctance to actually acknowledge that as well, because the repercussions of it in terms of just thinking about the future, about our own children, about other people on the planet, about what it is that we are doing and are responsible for, are obviously not things that we sit, that sit comfortably with our day-to-day -day lives. So there is a, a real, often I refer to as a cognitive dissonance here between what we sort of know is happening on one, one hand, but then you know, how we are prepared to act and, and deal with things on the other. So there is a real disjuncture um, between what we actually know scientifically, and actually quite a lot of people now are, are sort of, um, can, can take on board in terms of in their head, if you like, at any particular moment, but in terms of their heart and their day-to-day -day activities, we, we don't think about those concerns at all. So there's a real problem here in trying to, trying to address such a severe and, and dire future when really we live on a day-to-day -day basis. We, we get up, we live our normal lives, and it's hard to remind ourselves that the, the changes we're seeing across the day, which are incredibly small, are building up quite rapidly to changes that will be dramatic within just a few decades. So I think there are for, for issues to do with time, for issues to do with, um, with, with the, the real stress that puts on us to think that we are part of this process of devastation. I can understand that sort of psychologically whilst we deal with that by pretending it's not happening or by being incredibly optimistic about technical solutions that will come in and almost magically save the day for us. Right. So I think that, um, you know, that that's the position we're in now is this, is this real dilemma. We have really all of the information at our fingertips to understand the scale of the challenge. We have much of the information in terms of what we need to do about it. We have most of the technologies available. We know what the policy frameworks would have to sort of start to look like. And yet we also know that all of that put together means us doing things very differently from how we do them today. And that is the real difficulty. We're not really prepared to, to step outside of our comfortable status quo. And when I'm using the word our and we here, I'm really talking about those of us who are primarily responsible for the position we're in today, which is a relatively small percentage of the global population. Right, right. How dramatic do you think the changes will be necessary to hit the COP21 targets? And presumably, uh, we'd need to do more than that. Well, the, the, remember, the, with COP21, there was this, the promises from the governments that were put in to add up to about, as I say, 3 to 4 degrees C temperature rise by the end of the century. But the actual Paris Agreement itself had within there the collective goal of all countries to stay well below 2 degrees C and ideally pursue 1.5. So this, that is, the, if you like, the, the rhetoric action gap between the two. There's a huge gap between those two. If we are to meet the Paris commitments, the promises of one and a half to two degrees centigrade rise. We are talking about um, fundamental and profound changes as to how we live our lives, the technologies we use, but also the time frame by which we have to make this transition. Um, so just to give some sort of, some sort of ha handle on this, that as with all science, there are levels of uncertainty as to exactly what the levels of emissions we can put into the atmosphere are that relate to temperature. But we know with a reasonable degree of Sort of a useful range as to what they would look like. Now, for one and a half degrees centigrade... At the current level of emissions of carbon dioxide, we are pumping 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. Huge quantity of carbon dioxide. That, that we will use up all of the carbon budget for one and a half degrees C, certainly within the decade. 
and it could be as early as just a few years from today. So we would have to make you know, a current, uh, current emissions. Within a decade, there will be no carbon budget left. In other words, it will be too late for one and a half degrees centigrade within a decade. And, and that's being fairly optimistic. For two degrees C, we have a bit longer on that. Um, now, if we are prepared to accept a sort of a moderate chance of two degrees centigrade um, rise, which would all, already we recognize would be quite devastating for many parts of the world, that means really for the wealthy parts of the world, we have to have zero carbon energy by about 2035. Zero carbon. And not just electricity, but all forms of energy. Everything from flying and cars and refrigerators to industry and heating our homes and so forth. That's for the wealthy parts of the world by 2035. And because Paris says there's an equity dimension that's important and it will take the poorer parts of the world slightly longer to make the transition, they would need to be in the same position as zero carbon energy by about 2050. Right. If you start to play that out, that means the reduction rates are well over 10% per annum for wealthy parts of the world starting now for an outside chance of 2 degrees centigrade. And just remember, we have defined 2 degrees centigrade previously as the threshold between acceptable and dangerous climate change. That has been tightened now to really 1.5 degrees. Now, if someone was to get on a plane, but hopefully people who work on climate change wouldn't do that, but if you were to fly somewhere, would we accept a 50-50 chance of landing safely? Right. When you put it like that, we're prepared to do that with our own children's future and the future of the planet. Right, right. That's very stark, stark indeed. So, who 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 do you think uh, out there uh, at the moment? uh, um, Again, let me rephrase that again. So, the 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 level of change and the speed of change is going necessary to be very dramatic. Where are the ideas, and what do you think are the best? few things, a uh, few ideas that, that, that help us get, uh, oh dear, I don't know if it's my hoarseness or I don't normally have it. Let me do this again. Um, I, I try, try, sometimes trying to capture too much in, a, in, in one thing. I said, okay, so what, what um, taking this to the next level, Kevin, um, what would that mean in terms of current uh, technologies and current uh, consumption patterns? Maybe later we can talk about the possibilities of other technologies. Okay. Right. Well, I'm going to focus here on the sort of wealthier parts of the world to start off with. But actually, this equally applies to wealthy people in other parts of the world. So and we have to bear in mind that if you look at somewhere like China, there's about 300 million people in China who are relatively wealthy. So that's roughly the population of the EU. Um, okay, there's a billion people in China who are not. So I'm not just talking here about the wealthy people in the, in the uh, sort of richer countries, but actually wealthier people around the world. And by wealthier, I mean those people you know, like myself, like lecturers, professors, um, most professionals, so so there's quite a reasonable swathe of society that fit into this category. We would have to see, firstly, significant changes to how much energy we consume today. And the reason I'm saying this is because we cannot make the transition to low-carbon energy as rapidly as is necessary to stay within the carbon budgets to meet the Paris Agreement commitments. Well, why do you say so that, technologies... Kevin? Sorry, say again? Sorry, why do you say that, Kevin? If we think about that, if we were to build um, more wind turbines, solar panels, nuclear power, which is also very low, there may be other problems, but it's very low carbon dioxide emissions per kilowatt hour of energy produced. If we were to do all of that, that would take us decades to put that in place. Even if we had a, like a Marshall plan, like the reconstruction plan after World War II of Europe, even if we did that, you cannot build that infrastructure fast enough. Um, but in addition, it's worth bearing in mind that of the final energy we consume, the energy we consume in our homes and businesses and so forth, only 20% typically of that energy is electricity. 
80% of it is not electricity. That's including, obviously, in transport. Now, if we're going to go to zero carbon energy or very, very low carbon, it is hard to imagine how, how we would do that without most of it becoming electrical. So not only do we have to make the transition of our existing power network, electricity networks, to be zero carbon, but we've got to increase the size of those networks by a factor of, say, three, four, or five. Now, we could not be able to do that in a decade. Even in two decades, we'll be really struggling. You know, if we did have a Marshall-style plan, if we actually had a program of deliberate and shifting and transitioning away from fossil fuels that rapidly, we could probably just about do it in a sort of two, two and a half decade time frame. But it would require almost like a, almost a warlike footing in terms of technologies. But that would still mean that we would breach our carbon dioxide budgets. And therefore, in the interim, what we have to do is simply consume less energy. If we consume less energy, that means we consume less fossil fuels. That means we put less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So that's why the wealthy of us who have very high carbon footprints because we consume lots of energy, we are the ones that have to make very dramatic reductions in how much energy we consume. And just to give you some flavor of this, 50%, around about 50% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from 10% of the global population. And I always say we, we know who they are. We know who that 10% are fairly well. Well, and I... I, if I that, yes. If yeah. that 10% were to reduce their emissions to the level of the average European, so we're not talking here about something too draconian, even the level of the average European, that would be a 33% cut, in other words, a third cut in total global carbon dioxide emissions. So just having 10% of the world's population reduced to emissions or energy consumption at the level of the average European would give us about a one-third cut in global emissions. It just shows you how asymmetric the use of energy is, and therefore the emissions of carbon dioxide are, they belong principally to a relatively small group of people, which gives you technically, that gives you something from a policy perspective, a whole new set of levers to think, well, what could we do to bring the emissions down from that group? Right. So if you put that together with the idea of a sort of a Marshall-style plan on, on low-carbon technologies, most of which exist today, you put all of that together and you've got an outside chance of holding to two degrees C temperature-wise. Right. Now that is fairly dramatic and fairly stark, um, and and no one I've just I've spoken to really disagrees with the basic maths that I'm that I'm using here. They don't like the tone of my conclusions, but they don't really tend to disagree with those conclusions. And um, the only thing you sometimes get, and maybe we'll talk about this later, some people are postulating alternative technologies that currently don't exist that will suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the future to save us doing quite so much today. Right, and right. We'll, that, we'll get back to that later. But yes. if, you, if you park those technologies, which I refer to as Dr. Strange love technologies, they don't currently exist. Um, if we park those to one side and say, well, let's imagine they do not work, then what I'm laying out there is broadly what we would need to do. Right. And that, that's looking at it, I guess, from a consume, consumption side of things. Um, I, I mean, I have seen some figures saying that, you know, on, on the uh, that 90 companies cause two thirds of man-made global warming emissions. From a policy perspective, do you not think perhaps that that would be the uh, better area to focus than trying to, uh, you know, focus on this 10 percent, which are presumably, you know, uh, geographically widespread, uh, many, many different countries and, 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 and so forth? Well, certainly we could focus on the companies as well. But again, when we focus on the companies, what we have to be careful about, and again, we may come back to this with carbon pricing later, is that in focusing on the companies, what we're saying is they can produce less goods or use less, uh, sell things that require 
reductions. And those emission reductions will mean the changes in lifestyle of that 10%. Now, whether you directly challenge, target the 10% or whether you, you target the parts of the companies that 10% um, feed, I mean, there, there are different choices about that. But we have to be quite careful. If you target the companies, what happens to those people on relatively low emissions with relatively low income often, who will then see perhaps, perhaps see, say, big price rises in the, in the goods that they are buying? So we have to be quite careful not to be regressive in our approaches here. So I have no problems with, with, with us trying to also target the companies. My point about a Marshall Plan, in that I would put very clear criteria. So, for instance, I would say that you should have on all vehicles, there should be a, um, a maximum emission standard for that vehicle. So, for instance, the amount of carbon dioxide it can emit per kilometre. And that should be tightened every year very rapidly indeed. And to give some handle on that, say 100 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometre for a typical car being sold in the EU, tightening at 7 to 10% every single year. Now, the average car at the moment in the UK will be about, or most of the EU will be 160 to 170 grams on the road. The average new car, 130 grams. We already have 100 or 80 to 100 gram cars available. So these technologies exist at no price premium, but we have not got the courage to stand up to the Daily Mail and the Clarksons of this world who say we are infringing on people's freedom by requiring them to drive more efficient cars. These cars are already made by all of the major manufacturers. They look like normal cars. They do everything a normal car can do. The only thing they don't do is they haven't got perhaps the same status value and they can't theoretically do 140 miles an hour, but they can do everything else a normal car can do. Right. So there are plenty of things we can do within companies. We put, need to use standards. I personally like the concept of standards to drive down efficiency within, to drive towards efficient products produced by these cars. The same for power stations, which are a major source of emissions. You could simply have an emission standard of, say, 350 grams per, per kilowatt hour of energy they produce for their portfolio of power stations. And they will, that's, that's what it will be from next year, and then they will have to tighten it at 10%, say, every year after that. There are quite clear standard approaches we could use for existing large companies. But alongside that, because that, those are all effectively turned out to be technical solutions generally, alongside that, we have to find some way to use much less energy and through um, immediate changes to our lifestyles. And only if you put those two together do you start to stay within the carbon budget framework. Because it will take quite a long time for companies to make these changes. So if you put legislation in place to say, the cars to change, it will take them three, four years to make that complete transition to much more efficient cars. Now, it will be very quick because they're already doing it to quite a large extent, but they have to ramp that up. But that three to four years, every year of that is another 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere. Right. Every, every, uh, yeah. So every day we fail, it's more challenging the following day. Right, but you're optimistic that this approaching to try and get this 10% and reduce their consumption patterns. What ideas have you got there, Kevin? Well, I'm not, I'm not optimistic. I think we are, I, I, you know, I'm not optimistic about climate change. I, I think we will choose to fail. And the, that's very clear language there. Choose to fail. We're not set to fail. We are actively choosing to do that every day at the moment. I think we're going to carry on choosing to fail and simply to pass the burden on to our children and to other species. Um, but we don't have to do that. If we choose to succeed, which of course is what we should, in my view, is what we should try and do, then the sorts of things we're talking about are, for instance, people have talked about a frequent flyer um, levy. If you are a regular flyer, every time you fly, you pay considerably more for your additional flight. Now, I think we should be containing flying as much as we possibly can because it's, it is what the, what, particularly the one activity where there are no technical solutions in the offing, in the t- 
time frame we have to respond to climate change to meet the 2 degrees C target. So aviation is a real problem there. There are quite a lot of technical options for some of the other ones. But aviation, that's not the case. So a moratorium and airport expansion and a frequent flyer levy. I would say in our houses, we should have progressive metering tariffs. So the more energy you consume, the more you pay per unit. At the moment, the people, in, for instance, in the UK, again, who pay the most per unit are the poor people um, living in rented properties. Middle-class people like myself pay by direct debit and we get slight discounts. So the system is completely wrong at the moment. So we need to switch to progressive metering tariffs in our homes, frequent flyer miles. You could have things like personal carbon allowances where you actually have a card for when you're buying fuel, either for your home or for your car, for instance. But you had to have it scanned and it would take off your allowance. And if you used up your allowance, then that would, you would have to then buy additional allowance off the market, which would cost you quite a lot of additional money. This can be quite progressive because the poorer people tend to use much less energy than the wealthy. So that actually it's a much fairer way of dealing with what is ultimately, whether we like the language or we do not, we are having to ration out the amount of carbon that's available. And in the short to medium term, before we put low carbon energy supply in place, that means we're having to ration out the amount of energy that's available. So rationing is inherently what we are doing here. And we can either do it via things like price, which is often very, very unfair, or via some other mechanism, which is a much fairer approach. We would not have dreamt of using price to ration out food during the rationing period of World War II. And I would argue that energy is similarly important now, and therefore we should not be using price to ration out energy. Right. Maybe we can come on to that specifically in the carbon pricing. But the, the, it's the, the scale of what you're suggesting there, uh, we're not just talking you know, about England or you know, Great Britain or Europe. You're talking about something in every country in the world or, you know, uh, something of that kind of magnitude, which is, you know, extraordinarily uh, challenging in terms of coordinating and getting political commitment and so forth. And I guess that's perhaps... Uh, uh, well, not one of the reasons, but it certainly uh, lends itself to discussion of, of carbon pricing, something that is, uh, at the beginning, putting it into the actual price of energy, which would you know, uh, have, have an effect on incentives and uh, patterns of consumption as a result. And I know you've written about this recently, the whole question of uh, carbon pricing. What, what's your view on it? Well, there's two things there. Firstly, um, just want to go back slightly on this, is that I agree all countries have got to make significant changes, particularly those that are high emitters. Um, but the way I would much prefer to see this done is that we have a global carbon budget which society has given us fairly clearly for the temperature commitments that we have agreed to, say, within Paris. And what I think we should be doing is dividing that carbon budget amongst all countries around the globe. Now, that will be a huge amount of horseplay and poker playing by all countries. But ultimately, if we, want to, if we want to keep our emissions down, and we want to keep our temperature down, rather, we have to find some way of staying within that carbon budget. So I think we, we, whatever we do, we will have to face the fact is that we are going to have a limited carbon budget in each country. I then think each country should make its own decision as to how it wants to stay within that carbon budget for that nation, because each country is culturally different. You know, I'm now in Sweden, and they would have a different approach. They might, might have a much more regulatory approach, perhaps, than, say, the UK, which might use a tax-based mechanism or the, the Chinese would use some other sort of regulatory or, you know, approach. So each country has, you know, is culturally more, um, uh, more, more familiar and at ease with certain sets of policies and types of policies. So I, I would rather than, have, than say, uh, dictate what the policy framework should be for each country, I'd rather each country make its decision about how it would meet and, and live within its own carbon budget. So that's my preference. 
if you can come back to the idea of well, should we use a carbon tax and should the carbon tax then be say, global or should the carbon tax be national? Firstly, the idea of a significantly um, large carbon tax to try and drive a change emissions, I think, is just politically going to be incredibly challenging to bring about. Um, I don't know if you'd get agreement of, of a carbon tax that was agreed between the US and China. I really think that we're going to really struggle to, to get countries to all agree to what that tax should be. Um, and even if you could do that, my concern is you cannot get the price high enough. And this is my, this is really a big, big problem with pricing. A lot of people who look at the pricing are not looking at the carbon budgets. And if they are looking at the carbon budgets, they're doing it assuming you've got these negative emission technologies that are making the challenge easier today by passing on the burden to future generations. So they're not looking at such rapid changes. Prices and the whole framework of neoclassical market economics are premised on small changes, marginal changes. That's the whole theoretical framework behind markets. They're good for looking at small changes. We are not looking at small changes now. We're looking at very rapid changes. And that theoretical framework tells us nothing about how we think about large changes. So if you imagine, say, if you're buying a litre of fuel and the price per litre of the fuel went up from, uh, from uh, uh, what, what we are, one euro a, a litre to 1.1 litre or euro a litre of fuel, you could, yeah, people would change their habits a little bit. If we had to go from one euro per litre to five euros per litre, you'd see riots in the street. So prices in that sense become very, very problematic when you're seeing very rapid changes. We've seen already some of the fights that occurred over food, rising food prices when more of the world started to produce biofuel just a few years ago. Do uh, uh, some economists not talk about, is it calling it revenue neutral? So once this, these monies have been uh, raised, they will uh, then be returned back into the economy so the people who pay them uh, will, will get, get those monies returned. Yeah, well, actually, this is interesting. I mean, I think there is, there is one particular approach here, sort of the, the um, I think it's called cap and share or uh, fee and dividend approach. I mean, remember, firstly, you do not necessarily want to return the money back to the people who actually pay the taxes. Because the idea here is that the, the very high emitters will be, have to pay a lot more of this tax. And if you give the money then back to them, they can, of course, just carry on buying more fuel. So what you need to do is to spread that money evenly. So yes. the fee and dividend approach is that everyone pays into the carbon tax, depending on how much you consume. And given that most, you know, that most of that energy is consumed by a small group of people, they will pay most of that tax. Then you divide that amongst all the people on the planet evenly. Fine. If you can get away to suggest that the wealthy people in the UK and China and other parts of the world and the US are going to put in all this money and then the money would very significantly flow to poorer parts of the world, fine, right? The chances of getting that political agreement that we would pay um, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of pounds or euros or dollars in tax that we would then merrily see move across to other parts of the world to poor people, then, then okay, if we can do that, great. I just think that is incredibly unlikely to get the tax anywhere near the level that would start to bring the emissions down. And the other reason I'm saying this then is because most of us, people like me and the wealthy of this world, are inelastic primarily to the price of energy. We don't, if the price of energy goes up a bit, we just pay it and carry on living our lives. If the price of energy goes up for the poor, they buy less energy. So in cold countries like the UK, they start to get more fuel poverty. More of their children have bronchial problems. Right. The, the food they buy right. goes down. What about the so producers? There are real regressive issues yes. here. Yes. And only if you can get the price sufficiently high is it going to really affect people like me? And, our, and, and how, when I talk about how high, we did some work in aviation a few years ago, and it had to be over 300 euros a tonne 
the price of carbon to make only 25% difference to the price of a flight. Now, people like me, again, could easily pay 25% extra for the price of a flight. At the moment, it's what is it in Europe? Five euros a tonne. No one is talking at that sort of level. When we're looking at shipping at the moment, we're looking at bringing goods around, the transporting goods around the world to make a significant difference to the price of goods being transported, then we would probably have to see something in the, in the possibly several thousand euros per tonne. So the prices to stay within the carbon budgets that remain have to be so high that it would fundamentally undermine almost immediately the economic structures that we have. And this is why I think that the, a lot of the people who are talking about carbon pricing are either deliberately misunderstanding the very short time frame we have to respond or are thinking about doing sort of incremental adjustments <clears throat> that are not linked to the temperature or assume negative emission technologies in the future. Right. That's very interesting, the difference, because I know uh, many companies or increasing number of companies are using what they call shadow uh, carbon prices. And they are, uh, I think they vary significantly, but some of them are in the, a higher range there, not, not just 20 or $30. Well, yeah, but what year? I mean, some of them say, it might, might, there's not very many of them going more than, say, 30 to $50. Maybe they might say by 2050, it could be as much as $100 per tonne. I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about in 2050. Right. I mean, you have to have hundreds of dollars per ton starting now. Not, not Carbon budgets are that we are using up every day our carbon allowance to stay within the temperature tar targets. This idea of thinking of the long term completely misunderstands the fundamental science behind climate change. In 2050, isn't irrelevant. What matters is actually getting the emissions out of the system today. This is the big difference between the two. Now, I'm not saying carbon pricing hasn't got a role to play. And actually, I think it's much less important for the um, consumer than it is, for instance, a carbon price can make a transition for an energy company right. to move, say, from That's, coal yeah. or gas towards wind turbines. Yes. So I think prices can have a role to play in certain niche areas, and that can be very important. But the idea of a carbon price is a significant policy tool, I think, misunderstands the science and the scale of the problem. Right, right. I was going to say that the, the, the side for the corporate side and, and producers. I mean, this is a, a, a question I'd be interested to get your perspective. I mean, what, what, what role do you see companies playing in uh, you know, hitting the kind of climate targets or what we're talking about? And, and how would you rate their progress? Well, I mean, let's be blunt about it. Companies are absolutely pivotal. I mean, yeah, the, the, the companies of the world, uh, whether that's the small companies or whether it's the large companies, you know, these are the ones that facilitate the ways that we live on the planet. So they are, they are absolutely critical. I mean, it's pointless to think that they're an important part of it. But also, I think we have to start to not see the world in these sort of divided blocks between you know, the private sector and the public sector, um, or between the public and companies. You know, we all have to work in partnership. Companies work within the rules. Now, it's great if we've got altruistic companies that are going to say, well, we want to do things over and above what the rules tell us, and there'll be a few of those. But you know, altruism only gets you so far, and I think this is the same with individuals as well. Now, they can provide very good examples to governments of what companies could achieve, so they are, they are very important. We have altruistic and more forward-thinking and progressive companies. But most companies will not follow that route, and therefore it is the role of governments to put in the, the, the appropriate legislative framework to require companies to meet appropriate carbon dioxide emission levels. So it is a partnership between companies and governments here. We also are likely to need new models at the moment in, within companies. You know, companies just, by and large, companies just sell products. And even think of an energy company, it sells 
energy itself, electricity or itself, gas or oil or whatever it might be. If you go back to Edison and the original light bulbs and so forth, he sold light. He did not sell light bulbs. And by selling light, if he could make the light bulbs more efficient, he increased operating profits. Think of the model we have today. An energy company may want to be seen to be selling more efficient products and, 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 and encouraging efficiency, but actually he wants to sell more stuff. He wants to sell more energy or more products. And therefore, at the moment, it's selling more, which is what gives them the profit. So we need to think, find a way around that. Could energy companies, for instance, be service companies who provide comfort in your home? Now, the, the, the less energy they would require to do that, the, then the higher their operating profits, but also the less um, the amount of carbon dioxide emissions that would be emitted. So we need to have new models for thinking about this. Models of um, ownership may have to change to models of renting. We could, we could rent our refrigerators or washing machines, and they could be periodically updated by the, by the owner, which would be the companies who would come in, and they might change the compressor or the refrigerant or the insulation within your fridge or whatever, and you would carry on using the same chassis of the fridge. This would be modular construction. It would be much less material use, and it means we'd be kept up to date. So well, that, yes, there, there's a we can imagine for these yes, there is a lot of progress in the circular economy, the sharing economy. There are models like yes, that. Yes, there is, but, indeed, yes. but would they? How would they? In order to move at the pace that's necessary, how would that happen? Well, th again, that's why I'm saying I don't think companies. I don't think companies in isolation will do that. They need very stringent sets of rules around them, and those rules should not dictate which technology we use. They should simply be dictating what the emissions can be. And this is, I think this is really important here, that it is not the role of policymakers to be technology pickers. We, we're not very good at picking winners. But it, it is our role to set the framework within which companies should work, should have to deliver their, whatever it is they have to deliver their services. Right, and, right. And, and that, is, that is the role of government. But, um, uh, yes, that's... And, and I think that partnership would, would actually help drive, very rapidly would drive us to new types of models um, to, to, yeah, to serve the society. It yeah. makes us much more entrepreneurial and innovative. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, the, but the, uh, uh, that question about targets is intimately linked, uh, I, I, I think. Uh, so this question, um, as you say, of, of government setting targets uh, is intimately connected with this question of negative emission technologies. And uh, already there seems to be, uh, the, the people seem to be expecting a lot from these technologies. Um, so assumptions about uh, these technologies are important. What is your view uh, about the possibilities of these technologies? Let me start off with the, um, with the upbeat news, I suppose, that in my view, we should be researching them. We should be um, potentially um, doing some deployment of these technologies to see how well they, they may work. But these technologies are still really at best in the laboratory level. There's one or two that are just at very small pilot plant sort of levels. And when I talk about these technologies, we're primarily talking about technologies that would remove carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere at some point well into the future, so probably a few decades from now, and then have to carry on doing that right throughout this century and possibly the century beyond as well. So these technologies, the most common one that is used, and let's be also clear, these are not, these, are, these assumptions have been hidden in the advice that a lot of scientists have been giving government for the last well, at least the last five or six years. What do you mean? And they are well, what happens is that the scientific community, there's a particular group of scientists here that work very closely with economists, and these are called integrated assessment models, is the fancy jargon for them. And they're the ones that give the guidance to things like the Paris Agreement or to governments, for instance, the 
UK government about the rates of reduction in emissions that we would have to have to stay within, say, 2 degrees centigrade. But they've been hiding in their models, maybe not deliberately, but they haven't been bringing them to the fore. The fact is they're relying on these negative emission technologies to work. These technologies are highly speculative. They do not work. These, in the models, they assumed both to work. There was an assumption that we know what the price of these technologies which you know, would be in, say, 2050, 2060, 2070, and, the, and um, how effective that they would actually be. So these are embedded in the models. And the danger with them is that by embedding them in virtually every single model that is advising government on two degrees centigrade, these, these assumptions are already made. By embedding these in the models, that means you have to make much less um, mitigation. You have to reduce emissions at much slower rates today. So it's a very attractive, beguiling opportunity here. We've got these technologies of the future that means we haven't got to do as much mitigation, challenging mitigation today. So right. everyone likes them. Yes. Now, the problem with these technologies, if you look at the models, is the quantity that, firstly, they're, they're assumed to work, and there's no evidence to show these are going to work at significant level, but they're assumed to work. And it's the level that's assumed. At the moment, as I say, we put out about 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. About half of that every year is, absor is, is absorbed into the oceans and into plants. So that's what our biosphere does for us. It takes in about 20 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every year. Most of these models, or at least many of these models, are assuming by 2050, which is really very little time from now, for 20, you know, 35 years from now, that, that these technologies will be absorbing as much carbon dioxide as the whole of the world's oceans are doing today. And by the end of the century, they will be absorbing as much as all of the oceans and all of the plants put together. That is like attaching another planet alongside ours to absorb the carbon dioxide that we are not prepared to take out of the system today by using less fossil fuels. Uh, this is almost an unbelievable amount of carbon dioxide. We are talking about an industry that is bigger than any industry we have on the planet at the moment. We probably produce somewhere in the region of very approximately, say, 5 billion tonnes of cement every single year, probably 2 or 3 billion tonnes of steel, probably 2 or 3 billion tonnes of municipal solid waste. And yet we're thinking about absorbing 10, 20, 30, 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. Um, sorry, up to 20 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every single year by these technologies. So I think it is incredibly naive to assume this will actually work. I think it is incredibly dangerous to, to have these within the models without them being explicitly brought to the fore. And also that almost every model includes them. I think it's fine to have, say, 10% of all the models advising government to include these technologies. But then the other 90% should say, well, imagine they will not work because there's a very high probability they will not. What would the rate of reductions need to look like today? So we, I see this as perhaps, and this goes back to my comment right at the beginning about this sort of cognitive dissonance or we're trying to find anything to avoid changing the status quo. Um, we initially tried offsetting, which is we won't make the changes. We'll buy indulgences from somewhere else. Someone else can make the changes for us. They were then, we then formalized that in government called the Clean Development Mechanism. We then had emissions trading so that we could pay for someone else to make the reductions for us. And now we've got negative emission technologies. We have tried everything except for real mitigation. You know, we have to move away from these, I mean, it's slightly pejorative, but basically these, these scams. We have to move to the fact that we have to make big reductions in the energy we consume and a rapid transition to low carbon energy. And instead of this, we keep coming up with these increasingly exotic financial and now technical um, sort of mechanisms to, to avoid making the real difficult, politically challenging um, changes that are necessary today. And this is my real concern about negative emission technologies. We should research them. We should assume they do not work. 
right. That's a, a, a very interesting uh, way of looking at it and uh, pointing out the degree to which these assumptions, as you say, are, are, are built into these models. So it's obviously a, a, a crucially important area uh, in terms of, you know, uh, well, one, the targets we set and, and, and presumably also uh, the potential to deal with, you know, uh, have another tool in the uh, tools kit, as it were, to deal with this. I mean, I guess if you look at... Uh, well, may be able to have in the toolkit in the future but you, you probably can't rule out every single negative uh, emission technology and then it becomes a question of how fast and uh, you know they could scale and you know certainly um, you look at the, the falling prices I guess of renewable energy uh, you know it's quite uh, interesting I guess if you looked at silicon and if you looked at the kind of scale of uh, price changes and uh, growth of silicon technology um, you know, maybe that would give some hope that you could see something similar. Uh, you know, on that kind of scale, would already have a, have an impact. Oh, I'm, I'm not. I'm, let me be very clear. I'm, I'm talking here specifically about these technologies that suck CO2 out of the air. I'm not talking about renewable energy or the other option, energy options. There are plenty of technologies that we know have no work and have used at scale with a lot of experience. We know how to use wind turbines. Um, onshore and offshore, we know how to do solar panels onshore, uh, um, uh, on buildings or in big, in big solar farms. We know how to use geothermal energy. We've got tidal energy in France. We're still experimenting in the early days of wave energy. That is true. We've had nuclear energy for many years, I say, with all the other problems, but still very low carbon. We have a whole suite of technologies available to us, and we need to be putting those in place like there's no tomorrow. But why are you so pessimistic? Why are you so pessimistic, Kevin, about some of these technologies? I mean, it's one thing to, to perhaps to 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 be to say that they they're unlikely to reach the level required in these models. But surely, if you know, there's uh, price incentives there, um, and you know, there's a lot of money to be made with these technologies. And as I say, you know, the, the kind of uh, rate of technological progress what we've seen in in, in, in with respect to silicon-based uh, products, you know, it's it, it, it surely it's 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 a possible. Instantly, at the press of a button on a model, it takes a long time to put these things in place. 
and yeah, that's assuming that they will work. And whether you can grow enough biomass, which is assumed in virtually all of the models of the major form of um, negative emission technology, you grow the biomass, you harvest it, you, sh you pelletize it, you ship it all around the world, then you burn it in the world's power stations, you capture the carbon dioxide and store it underground for a few thousand years. Now, whether we have enough biomass to do that on a round planet with 9 billion people to feed um, and significant changes to the climate, even at 2 degrees centigrade, is a question that very seriously needs to be asked. Right. What a lot of nationalities are suggesting, the amount of biomass you would require would already see damage to other species, the equivalent of almost 3 degrees C of warming. So you solve one problem by creating another huge problem. So there are a whole swathe of problems about assuming you can actually just literally plant up the planet to help you remove the CO2 in the atmosphere in the future that we cannot be bothered to take out of the atmosphere today or we cannot, we cannot um, be bothered to reduce the fossil fuels that they emit the CO2 in the atmosphere. Rather. Right, but from what you're saying, Kevin, I mean, we're not looking for a silver bullet here. There's not one thing that's going to, you know, no. deal with this. And, and there is a tendency towards magical thinking, perhaps, with some of this, these new technologies. So what you're suggesting is, you know, uh, uh, different parties working together. It's not private sector, public sector. It's different organizations, different fora. It's got to be, you know, uh, working on different levels. What is, what's your sense of the, the different fora that are out there that are, you know, there's the COP, uh, you know, COP22 on the horizon now. A different, you know, there are uh, platforms. There's the, uh, you know, the UN Global Compact, which is the business to business compact. But there are different, uh, I guess, fora where, where, where policy is being made or, or ideas are being developed. Can you talk a little bit, uh, finally, about that and, and, and what kind of organisations do you think going forward will be best suited to deal with the, the, the nature of this problem? We have a lot of, of organisations and platforms out there already, and I'm very much in favour of the international negotiations we have every year. Um, I think they should be much, much lower carbon. We should be leading by example where we have these. Um, and we also have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that pulls together the science. And I think, again, that's a really important body. Um, but in the end, I don't think at the moment that any grand organization is going to solve this problem. And I, and I, and I come back to this idea that it's a, it's a partnership issue, that we require everything from individuals making changes, not because of the emission reductions that we've been making, but because they demonstrate it can be done to their friends and their colleagues, to their universities, to their local businesses, to their sports clubs. They demonstrate what can be done and therefore these things can be multiplied up. So there are some really good examples of this sort of thing being, being shown to be the case. I mean, the, the Dublin Fire Brigade has been some really interesting work that's been done there. So you, you see these examples that start off small and can quite rapidly um, be, be ramped up to bigger scales. That gives great examples to governments about what would you need to do in terms of taking that from, a, say, a, a regional level or from a company level so it applied to all companies. So this is this partnership between between individuals and, and smaller organizations and companies and firms and institutions and, if you like, the sort of more top-down uh, government framework. This has to be a partnership between the two. And I don't think any particular group of the great and the good that are brought together to resolve these problems is going to be the solution. Um, so I don't think there would be a solution. I mean, I see it very much, if you like, as emergent property. We need to try almost everything we can imagine, including, as I said before, negative emission technologies. But we try all of these things. And most of them, of course, will not be successful, but some of them will shine through. Some of them will be successful. Some of the seeds that we plant, if you like, will, will be successful and flower. And they're the ones we then need to sort of foster and say, well, what, what do we need to do to make those grow much more rapidly? 
So it, it is a, it is a, it is a coming together um, of the different sets of ideas. And, and that leadership is shown at every single level throughout society. I do not think we're going to get some benevolent, incredibly clever, clever dictator or groups of elites that are going to solve this problem for us. That's well, also to say that for many people on the planet, including the wealthier parts of the world, most people just go about their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. They will hopefully make some changes and so forth, but most of them are happy to work within the regulatory framework that our government set for them. Well, this is obviously yeah, crucially important, Kevin, because you talk about this kind of benevolent group or whatever. Politicians, you, 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 you come back again and again to the crucial importance of regulation. And this is clearly yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, this is what governments are about. And increasingly, the problems are complex and uh, need more than you know, in the intergovernmental solution. So by definition, that has to surely have an important role to play. And at the heart of this is, you talked about at the beginning, um, this question of uh, you know long term and short term, and 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 surely this is a, a, a key challenge at the heart of this. Is uh, as far as companies are concerned, certainly there is a lot of uh, drivers for short term success, and in 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 also in political the world of politics, um, you know it is shorter term, very short term indeed, and you know there is an anomaly at the heart of this, surely. But there is. I mean, there, there are real time is a. Time is really the pivotal issue here. We don't have much time to respond um, in terms of reducing our emissions, but of course the impacts generally get felt a little bit light later. So our sort of tendency to favour the present over the future is, is a real is a real issue, and that's a cultural issue. It's a philosophical issue, and it's one that you know, not all cultures have always felt like that. Indeed, um, even if you look at somewhere like the UK, there's some very good examples where people have been far more forward-thinking. Some companies are often forward-thinking. The regulatory framework in the UK, this idea of, of um, uh, you know, companies effectively having to maximise return to shareholders, I know it's not quite that simple, but the law does tend to support that position. Um, you know, that is unhelpful. You know, perhaps if we actually said that you know, companies have to, uh, and, and boards have to look at um, maximise return over a 30-year time frame to companies, then that would give a different ethos. So we, there are frameworks that can be put in place by government that can encourage and incentivize countries to com companies to take longer-term perspectives. The shareholder mechanism that we have in the UK with this sort of short-term, um, almost, almost immediate profit required, is very different from, say, some of the family-owned structures that you see within large organizations within Germany, where there's less share ownership. Now, I'm not saying one's necessarily better than the others. We need to learn from each other's model. But there are things that we can do that would encourage us all, either as individuals or as, as companies, to think more about the long term. And again, it's a role of government to think through what would the policy structures need to be that would encourage companies to do that. And companies, some of the companies are doing that already, and they can give advice to government on what those structures might look like. So as again, come back to the idea, it is a partnership, and there's, there is, you know, there's everything to play for, and we have plenty of tools in the armory. We are just, we are so locked into the status quo not being prepared to, to question things. And I, in that, I also mean the academics, the scientific community. We have run and continue to run scared of the funding regimes. We do not like to question um, the, you know, the political, economic hegemony that's there today. We're not prepared to do that um, because we know that will affect our own funding. It's not looked on favorably by, uh, by the research councils that provide the funding in the universities. So we all sort of end up really with a system that I always say is actually where economics has come to chump physics and, and science. And I think that's a real problem, is that we will need a paradigm shift in how we as humans engage within and, and operate on our planet. We are part of nature. We are not 
separate from nature, and that ultimately we have to abide by the, the rules of nature, by the rules of thermodynamics. And until we start to realize that, I think we're going to continue to fail. And at the moment, we've got this sort of almost um, sort of mentality whereby we can just carry on as we are today. We can just have, we can substitute current forms of growth for a greenwashed version of green growth, and we can just carry on consuming more and more stuff on a round planet with more and more people. And I think we have to, at some point, step back from that and say this is no longer realistic. And climate change is probably the first of these major warning signs that says that there's something fundamentally wrong with our current model of what we would call progress on our planet today. Well, Kevin, that's a clarion call for the future. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your views and to uh, indulge uh, these questions uh, and to, to, to have a, a share your perspective. It's been a, a fascinating uh, interview and thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.